Last week we began a three-part mini-series on 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 10 through chapter 2 verse 3 and it's entitled Embracing Kenosis. I hope it's a word you come to know. Embracing kenosis. And kenosis is a Greek word. It has to do with the idea of hollowing something out or emptying something out or pouring something out. And it's a word that theologians often use to describe what God did when He became flesh in the person of Jesus. He emptied Himself out. So embracing kenosis is the name of the series. Embracing self-emptying. Embracing the pouring out of ourselves. And the whole series has been occupied and will continue to be occupied with three mysteries that God has revealed to humanity in the person of Jesus. Last week we explored the mystery of God's mission. The mystery of God's mission. And in the context of that discussion, I understood Peter's words to suggest that the pattern of Jesus' life has revealed the mystery of God's mission to the world. From the creation account in Genesis to the formation sustaining, judging, and redeeming of the people of Israel to the life of Jesus Himself. God has been consistently repeating a pattern. It was a pattern that was difficult to see truly. Maybe it was even impossible to comprehend clearly until it had been revealed in the person of Jesus. The mystery of God's mission is the recurring pattern of crucifixion and resurrection. God has been bringing light from darkness, order from chaos, good from evil, hope from hopelessness, joy from despair, righteousness from sin. And as that pattern presented itself penultimately in the person of Jesus, Peter suggested that we now can finally understand God's mission in the world. God's mission has been to sacrifice Himself for those who have chosen to be His enemies. And all who would follow God must be willing to live into that pattern. We love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. We reach out to those living in the darkness of despair and hopelessness and poverty and infirmity because we understand that these are the ways that God is transforming all things into His image. Well, that was last week's sermon. So if you want to hear more about that, you'll have to go online. The Mystery of God's Mission. This week we continue our sermon series, Embracing Kenosis, with point number two. The Mystery of Holiness. The Mystery of Holiness. And if you don't know what holiness means, join the club. We all use it. But most of us don't know what it means, so we're going to define it together. I didn't know what it means, I feel like, until this week. And thank, thankful to Peter. We're going to begin today by reading the entirety of the passage. So I want to make sure every week that we have the whole context in view because we're only dealing with a part of this context, each of these three sermons. And so I'm going to read the entire thing. So if you don't already have Bibles open and you have access to one, I'll invite you to open to 1 Peter chapter 1. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. And I'm reading here from the NIV, the New International Version. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when He predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. 
Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a Father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through Him you believe in God, who raised Him from the dead and glorified Him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the Word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word this morning. Would you speak through it today? Would you allow us to hear what your word wants us to hear? And all those other things, may they fall away this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. So I want to begin with an illustration that I hope... Begin, right? I've been going for like eight minutes. But I'm going to begin today with an illustration that I hope will prepare us... Sorry, my, my microphone is being unruly. I think it will prepare us for what Peter is trying to say and where we need to be today, I think. Our daughter is learning how to walk. Some of you have been there with children. Some of you have watched children do it. In fact, these past two weeks have been weeks of exceptional growth for her in those areas. I mean, she went from standing and holding on to things to demanding with a quite loud voice a finger to lead her around the house to taking a few steps between handholds to actually walking down the hallway by herself. So this has been these two weeks have been crazy. It happens fast when it occurs, doesn't it? Now, she's been a bit slower to walk than our son was, and so I was wondering if it would ever happen. And so I had this fatherly impulse to encourage her to walk. Have any of you ever tried to encourage a one-year-old to walk when they're not ready yet? I mean, it's not easy even to how do you even explain it. In the end, it's really more up to them than it is up to us, isn't it? I mean, I can demonstrate what walking looks like as impressive as that might be. I can encourage her to intimidate the, to imitate the rest of us by drawing her away from the things she's holding on to and trying to get her to take her first steps. But in the end, if she falls to her knees, she falls to her knees. I mean, it's really up to her to decide to do it. I mean, her brain has to be ready, of course. I mean, she can't just do it whenever she wants. It has to be ready in terms of communication with her muscles and her sense of balance and all that. Her muscles have to be ready in terms of that balance between flexibility, elasticity, and firmness. And they have to be strong enough, of course, uh, to hold her weight. Her bodily proportions have to reach a suitable balance. That enormous head children are born with uh, doesn't work for walking very well. And there are other things that have to be in place, of course. But in the end... 
she has to choose when she's ready to let go and, and walk in order for all of those systems really to learn how to work together in meaningful ways. And I think we'll discover today that something similar is at work in us when we are born anew in Jesus and we begin to learn to walk in the ways Jesus walked. Not only has Peter suggested that Jesus revealed the mystery of God's mission in the world, that was point one of this sermon that will last three weeks, but he also taught us that Jesus has revealed the mystery of holiness. That's point two, the mystery of holiness. But what does the word holiness mean? Well, defining holiness is a bit trickier than some might presume. Lots of us assume we know what it means, but it's actually hard to figure out exactly what Jesus means by it or Peter means by it when they use the word. The root of the idea of holiness comes from a Hebrew word, and it means essentially separateness or otherness or specialness. In our everyday lives, there are things we use routinely, right? Plates and dishes and cups that we use every day. And then there are those things that we only take out on special occasions. So to use holiness in a real base common use of the word, we might call those special occasion things holy. And that's the foundation of the word group. However, in Israel, the concept of holiness was refined a bit. The concept of separateness or specialness it, 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 it got new meaning, renewed meaning. It started to mean something entirely different when it started to be used of God. God called Himself holy. And from that point forward in Israel, holiness became a quality, not just associated with separateness or specialness, but with God's separateness, with God's uniqueness, with God's exceptionality. And holiness began to refer almost exclusively either to God or to those things that had been set apart or persons set apart to God for some special purpose. So furniture and instruments and ornaments in the temple were called holy because they were used for worship of God. The priests who were set apart to minister before God on behalf of the people of Israel, they were called holy. Kings of Israel were anointed as holy to the Lord. And the people of Israel generally were holy as they had been set apart from the nations of the earth to be God's possession. So what I'm getting at is that when Peter uses this term holy or holiness, he presumed all of that history. And to understand what he meant to say, we have to appreciate somehow that holiness had to do with God, had to do with godliness. Throughout the First Testament, the Israelites knew that they were to be a holy people, which meant that they were to be a people set apart to God. And that had particular ways of showing itself. It had to do with living in submission to the covenant of Mount Sinai, to the rules and the regulations and the guidelines that God gave to Moses. You can find them in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. It had to do with living in submission to those. It had to do with worshiping God with all of their lives and not just at certain times and occasions. And it had to do with simply being the people of God and making that very clear. Holiness had to do with all that. But how exactly is God to be understood as holy? How is God special or separate or exceptional? Lots of ways, I imagine. Too many maybe even to consider. And in the First Testament, it appeared that God's holiness related specifically to His relationship to sin and to uncleanness. And so Jewish tradition, and they got that from the Law of Moses. I mean, it was all about staying away from sin, staying away from people who were considered unclean, remaining pure, all that sort of stuff. So the Israelite people just sort of assumed 
that God's holiness had to do with his separation from sin and uncleanness. I mean, it must have, because all the rules were intending to keep them away. At least that's what it looked like. And so Jewish tradition had spent considerable time by Peter's day delineating rules and regulations intended to keep people quite a distance away from sin, from disobedience to the covenant, and from uncleanness, from people who were stained by sin or somehow touched by it. Perhaps some recall the shock of the Pharisees, the Jewish teachers, when Jesus was willing, for instance, to be touched by a prostitute or to eat with people known to be living lives of rebelliousness and lawlessness. They were shocked by it. They couldn't believe it because God is all about holiness. It's all about separation. How could He dare? Now, given the rules of Sinai and the response of God towards sin and rebellion throughout the history of Israel, it's understandable that the people of Israel came to that conclusion about holiness. In fact, I think I'd argue that they were right to understand holiness in those ways. This was the revelation of holiness under the covenant of Sinai. It was God's definition of holiness for humans under that covenant. To remain separate, to remain clean, to remain unstained. But Jesus would reveal the heart, the core, the logic, the fundamental reality of God's holiness. And its separateness of a quite different kind than God was asking of Israel under the covenant of Sinai. And that was exactly the point for Peter. Whatever holiness is must be understood finally and fully and ultimately in Jesus. And Jesus did not keep himself apart from the unclean and the sick and the corrupted and the sinner. In fact, Jesus went to those people constantly. He ate with those people. He taught those people. He died for and at the hands of such individuals. Jesus revealed that the separateness, the holiness of God, doesn't express itself through exclusiveness. The holiness of God seeks that which is unholy to make it holy. Are you ready to hear Peter's words again? As we explored the mystery of God's mission, we focused on verses 10 through 12 and 17 to 21 of this passage. This week, for the mystery of holiness, we're looking closely at verses 13 to 16 and 22 to 25. Look again at 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert. The, the Greek actually says, with girded minds. This idea of, you know, they used to wear longer flowing garments, and so to run they would have to tuck up their outer garments so they wouldn't trip over it. And that's what he says here. Gird up your minds. Um, so, therefore, gird up your minds and be fully sober. Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as He who called you is holy... So be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Verse, moving on to verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. The people of Israel had thought that the secret of holiness was obedience, separation, cleanness. That those things that made them holy necessarily made them different from everybody else, stood them apart from everybody else. 
And to a degree, that was holiness under the covenant of Sinai. But within the covenant of Sinai itself was a logic, a rationale for that separation, for holiness, that was more than all of those things. And Jesus summarized that logic when He said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. The logic of separation of holiness has always been love. Now that was difficult to understand truly under the covenant of Sinai. In fact, it might have been impossible to comprehend adequately if God had not become flesh in Jesus. God's people were to remain separate. Not so that they could build walls of hostility between themselves and unholy people. Not so they could protect themselves from the world. Not so that they could retreat and live in little monasteries so that nobody could touch them and they could remain pure before God. That's not why they were to be separate. They were to remain separate, obedient to God and clean before Him, so that they could go to those who were unclean without being corrupted by them. Holiness was a means to an end. And that end was the redemption, the salvation of the world. The mystery of holiness, according to Peter, is that it does not begin with obedience. It does not begin with commitment. It does not begin with devotion or any other human effort or intention. Holiness is rooted in God. Did you catch Peter's reference to this covenant of Sinai in verses 14 and 15? As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. That's a quotation. And God's holiness is rooted in love, as that love has been redefined by the pattern of Jesus' life. Notice Peter's words in verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. What is the truth that they have obeyed? That they purified themselves with? What is it? Well, we discussed it last week. It was the truth of Jesus. Jesus revealed that God's mission in the world is to lay down His life for sinners that they might become children of God. God's holiness is ultimately and finally expressed in this sacrificial mission, in this pattern of crucifixion and resurrection. Holiness does not begin with obedience or submission or conviction or intention or consecration or any of that. The mystery of holiness is that holiness begins with love. The love God displayed by becoming flesh in Jesus. Living with us, as us dying for us, and rising from the dead before us. When we obey the truth revealed in Jesus by laying down our lives for the sake of the world, then we're born again to live holy lives. Lives of sincere love, sincere devotion, sincere commitment to others, and especially to those of the fellowship of believers. If we're to be a holy people, we must understand that we do not come to God and to Jesus only for our own salvation or forgiveness. The life of Jesus shows us that to come to God, we must lay down our lives for the world, for our enemies, for those who persecute us, for those who have made themselves enemies of God. That's how Jesus went to God. 
and it's the road we must follow too. All who wish to be my disciples must take up their cross and follow me. This love that places the needs of others alongside of our own needs, this love that sacrifices who we were for the sake of those who do not know God, this love that is willing to lay down its life for enemies and God-haters and skeptics and atheists and persecutors and false accusers and abusers, this love is the beginning and the road and the destination of holiness. Rules will not make us holy. They never did. Intentions will not make us holy. Abstinences will not make us holy. And commitments will not make us holy. Holiness is rooted in the love of God for humanity. The mystery of holiness is love. A few years back, a Christian minister by the name of Rob Bell wrote a book entitled Love Wins. Has anybody ever heard of it? It was a controversial book at the time. It still continues to be a controversial book. And that's for a number of reasons, really. But one of the more hotly debated issues the book raised at the time, and even presently, was Bell's consideration of the idea that there was no hell. He seemed to say that there is no hell. And that was quite controversial. Now, I don't want to debate that idea today. Suffice it to say that the language of hell is biblical language. And so I believe hell is real. Now, what exactly hell is, where hell is, and all those sorts of things, they're interesting and worth debating. And maybe we'll do that in our... Wisdom Seekers, that's my shameless plug, and our Wisdom Seekers gathering one of these months. But that hell is, seems to be a consistent proclamation of the apostles of Jesus. But what was interesting to me in Bell's question, it didn't relate to the reality of hell. Bell seemed to imply a more insidious question, and it took me completely off guard when I read it. What's the question? I'm glad you asked. It's this. Why do I want there to be a hell? Why do I want there to be a hell? Now that's a different question, isn't it? Is there a hell? Yes. There must need to be a hell, I imagine, in the economy of God. But why do I want there to be a hell? That's something else. Do I want there to be a hell because I want my decision to follow God to mean something? Do I want there to be a hell because I want people to pay for what they've done? Do I want there to be a hell because I want some validation for all I've sacrificed to follow Jesus? I mean, if universalism was true and all of us get there anyway, what have I done all this for? I need a hell to validate me! Is it okay to want there to be a hell? Is that okay? I don't know. Really, I don't know. But I have to ask, is it? Because if I'm understanding the later language of Second Peter, the second book ascribed to the Apostle Peter correctly, I'd say that God doesn't want there to be a hell. Second Peter 3, 8-9 says this, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And that passage reflects actually an earlier teaching God revealed to the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 30-32. 
to 32 that says this, Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways. Did you hear that in Peter's language? We serve a God who judges impartially. Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent. Turn away from your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you've committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. There is a hell. But I think the witness of God, particularly as that witness has been underlined by the pattern of Jesus' life, is that God doesn't want there to be a hell. This, I believe, Peter was suggesting, is the heart of God's holiness. It is the fundamental way in which God is different than all the rest of us. God is different from everything else in creation for lots of reasons. I mean, He's the creator of the world. He's not a part of this universe. He lives in a realm apart. Talk about the power that that implies. He knows the future. I mean, there's a lot of reasons He's holy, that He's different from us, that He's separate, that He's unique. But Peter doesn't call up any of those things, and nor did Jesus emphasize them. There's one emphasis, one thing that constantly comes out of the life of Jesus and the teachings of apostles that tell us that God is different from everything else in existence. And it's this. God is not interested primarily in Himself or His own vindication or His own well-being or His own self-interest or His own vengeance. God is holy in that He lays down His life for His enemies. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There is a hell, but if we want there to be a hell, if we still have that visceral desire to see some people go there, I think we still have a ways to go in holiness. Holiness begins by embracing the pattern of the life of Jesus. And holiness proceeds in sincere love of others, even our enemies. And holiness will reach its fulfillment in deep love that comes from a heart so overwhelmed by the love of God and others that it desires only salvation, only redemption, only transformation for the world. Are we a holy people today? Like my daughter, we were not born into this world knowing how to walk as we were intended to walk. And when we're born again in Jesus, we don't suddenly know how to walk as Jesus walked from the beginning of our journey with Him. Some of us, newly born again, can only lie there. I mean, we need the body of Christ to carry us and to care for us for a while as we grow in Jesus. When we're freshly born again, we're not potty trained. Things get messy. We can't feed ourselves. We're always hungry. We're always crying. We're always needy. We're hungry and we need God to feed and care for us through His church. But there comes a time in every child's life that they must begin to walk after the pattern of their parents. And there comes a time in every spiritual child's life that we must begin to look to God our Father and Jesus our groom for what it looks like to walk in God's world. And it looks nothing like what it looks like to walk in this one. It looks like sacrifice. It looks like forgiveness. Oh, I'll forgive them when they ask for it. Oh, I didn't realize Jesus died after you asked for it. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Our repentance doesn't make forgiveness happen. It receives the forgiveness already offered. God's way of walking looks like forgiveness. It looks like selflessness. It looks like the pouring out of ourselves. Kenosis. It looks like love. This is the holiness of God. It's the way a holy God walks. And it's the way fully mature believers walk. And it's the way each of us must learn to walk. Are you ready to take your first steps today, some? Are you ready to walk the road of holiness by forgiving those who sin against you? By praying for those who persecute you? By loving those who have made themselves your enemies or enemies of God? Are you ready to let go of the coffee table and take those first steps of letting go of the need for hell and punishment and retribution and justice? Are you ready to take those first steps of holiness by releasing your instincts of self-defense and self-protection and fear? Those first steps of opening yourself and your life to the risk of love and to the need for sacrifice? You can do it. You can do it. I know it seems impossible. Just like those first steps seem impossible for our children when they first attempt them. But something in their development makes them ready. And when they are ready, they learn, however slowly and awkwardly, to do it. When we decide to follow Jesus, God gives us new birth and He begins a work in us that prepares us for walking in His new heaven and His new earth. Like the grace of nature prepares a child, so God is preparing us. We can do it. Because God intends us to do it. He has been working in us to allow us to do it. But we must trust the call of our Father to let go and take the first steps of faith, of holiness, of love. Is He asking you to take those baby steps this morning? Is there forgiveness you have to offer? Is there sin you must repent of? Is there some way that you, your fear has led you to attack and to vilify and to try to devastate your opponents? Or like Jesus, have you found some way to redeem them through a sacrificial life of love and service? Are we ready? Do we trust Him is really what I'm asking. My daughter had to trust me when I told her she could let go and she could do it. Do you trust Him? Or will you hold to that coffee table and keep walking in the way you did before you knew Jesus? That's the challenge for each of us today. Would you stand with me? Perhaps the Lord is speaking. Perhaps you're feeling the call of the Holy Spirit to live a different way. You've already accepted Jesus for many of you, myself included. We've already heard His call and we've responded to it. We've already embraced the forgiveness that He achieved and accomplished for us on that cross and in His life. But perhaps we have refused to learn to walk as Jesus walked. Perhaps today is a day to decide to take those first steps. You can do them in a number of ways. You can simply decide in your heart with God that you're going to do that and go out and put the first steps into practice, however clumsy they may be. But some may need more than just that internal decision. Some may need to come to these altars and make a much more uh, large and communal gesture to say, I want to be holy. 
I want to follow Jesus. I want to learn to walk. Sometimes for some of us, the first steps are to get out of that pew and get over ourselves and to walk forward and say, God, I will go where you lead me. The Lord's asking you to follow Him. You need to follow Him as you are comfortable following Him, but to the extent that He's asking you to follow Him. And I want to give you opportunity today to respond to the Lord. If it's coming to these altars, then I invite you to come. If it's to make a decision in your heart, then I invite you to decide. I'll give you just a few moments. No music, no fanfare, no manipulation of your emotions. This is between you and the Holy Spirit of God. Come if He calls. Change if He asks. I'll give you moments to decide how you'll respond to your Lord.